This episode of Future You is brought to you by Nelnet Campus Commerce, delivering payment technology for a smarter campus, and by Entangled Solutions. This is Future You with Jeff Salingo and Michael Horn. Welcome to Future You. I'm Michael Horn, joined by my co-host, Jeff Salingo, and delighted for our episode today as we welcome two guests in the uh, in, in our studio here in Somerville, Mass. Uh, we don't normally do that. We normally have one, but we get two today uh, because they are the founders of Admit. We've got Nick Dukoff and Sabrina Manville. Welcome to the show, guys. Thanks. And uh, the question we'd love to dive in is, uh, frankly, what is Admit? Uh, we know it's, you all started it to help students and parents uh, make much better decisions around higher education, given that costs are escalating and so forth. But give us a little bit more depth into uh, how you got started in this company and what problem you're solving. Great. Yes, thanks. Um, first, thanks for having us. Michael and Jeff, we're excited to be here. Uh, Nick and I started the company um First, we were working in higher education. We were working in institutions of higher ed. Nick was at Northeastern, and I was at Southern New Hampshire. And those are very different institutions, but we were seeing families um, having the same questions and problems um, when they were considering where to go to school. And those are really around the finances. Uh, As you mentioned, the cost of college is going up, and it's very hard for students to actually understand how much it's going to cost for them when they're first applying. They also were having more and more questions about the outcomes of college and whether it's worth it and, you know, whether this more expensive school was more worth it for them. Um, And so we started Admit to help demystify uh, a lot of the numbers and data that have been coming out um, kind of on the policy side and try to bring those more into the hands of the uh, of the consumer so that they could um, make wiser decisions at every step, whether it's starting to apply, to knowing where to go, to what to major in, and all of those things that really have a long-term impact on their finances as a family. So what's the what's the business model here? So who are the who are the customers and what are they what are they buying? What's the product? Yeah, that's a great question. So our product is really divided into three parts. We have our software and our software helps families understand all of the questions that they may have about how much is God gonna cost them, can they afford it? what's worth stretching for, and all sorts of other tips and advice uh, through our digital software solution. We also offer uh, content. So we have a learning center. We actually just published a book, Better Off After College, and we're about to release a course where students and their parents can get certified as smart borrowers. And we're currently putting together a consortium of partners that will be offering benefits to um, those course takers after completion. Um, And then the third part is we have an advising network where parents and students can actually talk to um, one of Edmit's um, college financial counselors to help them make smarter college financials. So is your hope to try to bring the uh, kind of the financial fit of college up in the process? It seems like, you know, most students are picking colleges based on academics or social reasons. And then it's kind of like at the last moment, they're making the decision on finances. Is it try to align those two things together, which always seems to be out of alignment. Now, of course, colleges love that, uh, the fact that it's out of alignment, right? Because it works to their advantage, right? You, you fall in love with the college emotionally, and then you have to figure out how to pay for it. Um, so I'm assuming that parents love your product. Maybe colleges don't always. Uh, that's exactly right, that we're trying to um, we're trying to integrate the financial conversation at every step of the way. So really, you should, when you're figuring out what your list is, what your college list is, be looking at not just where can you get in and what's your kind of 
reach and safety schools, but also financially, are there schools that you know are definitely going to be affordable for you versus the ones that might not be? Um, and that's definitely part of our advice. So one, one other question, because I've been uh, intrigued by this since I uh, you know got familiar with what you guys were building, which is that you're not just sort of giving net tuition price calculators or something like that. You're really looking at each individual and giving information based on your profile and others like you at this particular college, this is what you're most likely to pay. So it's not an on average figure. It's really specific. How are you getting that sort of data to be able to give that sort of recommendation? So our, our data, uh, we think about our data as a pyramid. The foundational layer is government data. And we're, we're grateful for the great work that um, the, the government has done in, in collecting and making data available, Department of Education, Labor, and 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 other uh, departments. The middle layer is licensed data. Uh, we have a number of partners, uh, both private companies, nonprofits, and researchers. Um, we also are constantly mining the web. Um, whenever there's publicly available data that we think can better inform our data and our models, we're we're out there pulling it. And then the top of the pyramid, and, and, and this is in many ways the most important, is first-party data. So our users are contributing their own data back into the platform, and we use that to validate all of our models and assumptions and improve upon them. You recently made news uh, because of another model that you wanted to build around um, institutions potentially uh, going out of business, right? So this has been a lot of discussion. Uh, you know, we're in we're in the Boston area uh, today recording uh, the show. This has kind of been ground zero uh, for that here in uh, here in the Boston uh, area around institutions just not being able to be financially uh, viable. Could you talk a little bit about what what the model you were trying to to build here around uh, colleges and their financial viability? Yeah, so as a comprehensive financial tool um, with data, we started getting questions from our customers about the potential college closures in their area. And this was, you know, obviously not yet a widespread issue, but it's something that is hitting the news in local areas. And so um, we just started to hear some questions and frankly, didn't have a good answer, um, even as experts in higher education. And so we set out to do a little research project about it um, and to try to see what are the kind of leading indicators that could predict kind of the financial stability of of a college. Um, And that was the research we did. We are... We have not figured out um, how to present that to the customer, and that actually wasn't phase one. Um, We knew that that would be a more complex uh, thing to figure out because, frankly, you know, you need to contextualize information whenever you're putting it in front of families that might not have all of that of that context. But our first step was to really look at what data was out there and, and how we could use it to better inform questions of financial health. So I'm, uh, I guess I'm guilty as a bit of a co-conspirator with you on this in the sense that I uh, helped pitch it to uh, Paul Fan at Inside Higher Ed when he wrote the story. But it got a lot of backlash from uh, colleges that he then reached out to from the list that said, hey, you look like you're sort of under the 10 years uh, of, of viability left. Can you just talk about sort of what that incident was like from your perspective in a startup trying to give students and families better information uh, and how that sort of went down from your mission perspective? That's a great question. We we knew that this was a sensitive project. Mm-hmm. And we took great pains to really deliberate and be thoughtful about how we plan to release that information. And thank you, Michael, for connecting us with Paul and Inside Higher Ed. I think they treated it with care. And it was our intent to really start the conversation by making this data our model 
uh, and the methodology available on GitHub, an open source community uh, that would have enabled us to welcome comments from anybody to make um, that research better. Um, unfortunately, a college um, and a association um, kind of flexed their muscles a little bit and 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 made us take a step back and and think a bit more about um, whether that was the right time and place for us to make that research public. And so uh, where do you stand now? Because you've done a lot of research. You have this model. I've looked at it. Frankly, I think it's conservative of anything, uh, that there's going to be more schools closing. Uh, You've taken great pains at this point to really look at the actual finances and not layer in all the things we know coming, like demographics and competition from faster, cheaper alternatives and all the things that might be out there that people like me like to write about. Uh, So where does this go from here? Because this is still pretty valuable information that uh, having the context around would would be useful. Yeah, absolutely. So um, we've been having a lot of conversations. We've actually already shared kind of um, the data one-on-one with people that request it, um, who are interested in doing research of their own or using it in some way. Um, we are considering some kind of convening in, this, in the winter, spring uh, for, with researchers where we could get more feedback on the model and kind of ways to improve it. So really our next step is to continue the work in some way, hopefully with a wide set of partners that bring expertise to this. This isn't our core business as a company. Right. And so we do want to make it available, but um, we're, we're likely to do it with others. Right. It's not your core business, but this is consumer. I mean, what frustrates me is the blowback, right? Because this is consumer information that people should have, right? It's, uh, you know, students and parents should have it. And it frustrates me because, you know, Michael and I have just spent the last couple of years working on books about admissions. And and the whole process is so um, on the side of colleges and universities, right? They hold all the cards um, in admissions. And in many ways, they hold all the cards in financial aid and almost everything about the college experience. Um, I mean, no model is going to be perfect, uh, so no matter how many researchers you bring together, you, you're going to create some model someone's not going to like. Um, so even though it's not part of your core business, it is part of the consumer information that people should have, right? So at some point, do you just say, this is the best we can do and people should have this information? Yeah, so we, we've had very encouraging conversations with folks in the Department of Education, um, funders, um, and others who um, want this information to be made available to consumers and taxpayers. You know, we're all taxpayers. We all have, I think, a right um, to to know more about how those taxpayer dollars are being spent, and um, uh, also about you know what commitment these colleges have to their students. We're talking about real potential consequences here. I think this has continued to go overlooked, which is perplexing to me that we're talking about real people who are. Um, being marketed to, are enrolling at, and then matriculating to institutions that may very possibly close while they are enrolled Mm -hmm. um, with no protections whatsoever um, to the student, um, making what is already hard. I mean, we have a college persistence and attainment problem in this country, and the um, students oftentimes finding themselves... um, having difficulty to complete are, are, are likely to be the same students that may find themselves literally out of a college halfway through. Not of their own through. fault. Yeah. 
Yeah. And you've made the uh, blockbuster analogy, obviously, in some of your writing around <laughs> this about you were, uh, the, the, I guess, the gift cards or something like that that you hung on to for, for blockbuster video only f- to find them out of business at some point. But analysts were writing about that in that case. They were predicting that. So uh, I guess to you all, now's your chance on this show to break some news. Any institutions in the New England area you want to sort of spotlight <laughs> or uh, <laughs> tease out? Or or, or, may, or if you don't want to go that far, we'd love it if you did. But if you don't want to go that far, how should we think about this question? What are the big variables? that you all are looking at in your model itself? Yeah, I think um, the, the data is publicly available. Um, you know, yes, we're competent researchers and, and data modelers. Um, it isn't rocket science. Um, Forbes recently put out a, a rating of their own that ended up being um, somewhat consistent, their scores with, with uh, the colleges. Yeah, I think you saw, on, I, on I saw your tweets. So it was over 90%. There was a, there was yeah. a high correlation, especially among the colleges that we had as likely to fail within the next five five or so years. Um, so you know, others can certainly reproduce this, and I'm and I'm sure they will. Um, I know there's a book coming out, Johns Hopkins Press, I believe, um, soon. I'm I'm excited to read that. Um, but but this data will be made available in some form or fashion, whether it be by us or someone else. And um, I think colleges should should really be um, thoughtful about how they're communicating. Um, their financial health, both to their students, their communities, and frankly, the broader public that has a right to know. So Nick, uh, uh, both Michael and I have uh, small kids. Uh, Mine are are 10 and 8. My wife and I were just talking this morning about what we want to do about their 529s this year as we end the end of the, we're recording this in December, nearing the end of the tax year. And so um, uh, you've predicted though, because, you know, I'm, uh, you know, everybody's always trying to figure out, you know, my kids will go to college in 2028 and 2030, and everyone's trying to figure out what college will actually cost uh, by then. And, and you predicted recently that uh, you know college tuition won't be rising as fast as it has been. You predicted um, you know one hundred forty five thousand in twenty thirty six. Can you talk a little bit about how you arrived at that at um, number and and why isn't going is it is not it's not going to rise at, at the level it has been in your opinion? Sure. So I, I recently had the opportunity to write uh, for Barron's an opinion that was an expected value calculation for what college would cost for my daughter when she matriculates in 2036 um, in 17 years. And um, there's a lot of downward pressure on college pricing. There's demographic headwinds. Um, there's online and other um, competition coming out of you know Silicon Valley and innovation broadly. Um, colleges are oftentimes finding themselves having to compete more for the same students where they may have had kind of more territory um, in the in the past. Um, International student interest seems to potentially be waning, at least in the short term, TBD on on if that's a long-term consequence. There are um, politicians running for uh, president who are talking about meaningful changes to the higher education landscape, um, including free college. I think when you add kind of all of those up, um, you get enough pressure that um, makes the likely expected cost of college um, lower than it is today. And um, in my model, it's virtually flat, and that's net adjusted for inflation. So so when you take into account all of those factors, I think that college will cost virtually the same as it does today in 2036, even though um, real wages should be much higher in 2036. So college, in fact, may cost less in the future than it does today. Well, I think Jeff and I will hope for that for our kids. But uh, in the meantime, super appreciative of you both uh, dropping by the studio uh, to talk to us on Future You, and we'll be right back. This episode of Future You is brought to you by Nelnet Campus Commerce. Nelnet Campus Commerce delivers payment technology for a smarter campus. 
the secure payment solutions for higher education are PCI Level 1 validated and integrate with every major ERP. From payment processing and refunds to payment plans and online storefronts, Nelnet Campus Commerce helps process payments on campus. Learn more at campuscommerce.com. This episode was also made possible with support from Entangled Solutions. If you want to shape the future of education, Entangled Solutions would like to hear from you. Entangled Solutions is hiring smart, mission-driven team members interested in helping world-class institutions solve their most vexing challenges in learning and education. Learn more at entangled.solutions. Welcome back off a great conversation uh, with uh, Nick and Sabrina. And uh, Jeff, it, it caught my interest that they were talking that you asked them about how to help students and parents much earlier in the college admissions process start to think through uh, the financial question, not just sort of what college do I like based on social uh, ideas or based on academics, things like that, but actually bring in dollars into the picture. I'm curious, you know, you've spent a lot of time with families, you spent a lot of time with admissions offices uh, on these sorts of questions. What's your take on the feasibility of people bringing that in and, and what's needed to uh, uh, help them uh, bring that information much earlier. So we, we've tried this so many times. Uh, you know, the net price calculator, uh, which was put into the Higher Education Act years ago, was supposed to try to bring up the cost of college, but obviously uh, it doesn't quite work the way it's supposed to all the time. Uh, most students and parents don't even know it exists. You can't quite find it on some college websites, and most students fill it out not really knowing much about their parents' uh, finances. Then uh, we had a change in federal law so that students and parents can use prior, what was called prior, prior year. They could use old, basically old tax returns. Uh, the FAFSA deadline was moved up by a couple months. Again, the hope was we you would know earlier on what your expected family income was. Students could, or colleges could package uh, uh, financial aid packages earlier. But none of this really changed uh, the basic assumption that I think when you start the college search is people start, I want to go to these five colleges or I want to go to this state or something like that. And you don't really think about price. And it still amazes me in this day and age that almost everything else we buy, um, we buy, especially big ticket items. We, you know, we don't search for a house without really having a price range. Uh, we don't search for a car without having a price range. But yet we search for colleges with re- not really having a, a price range. And so what ends up happening then is I think students get emotionally attached uh, to some colleges and and people stretch. Uh, and this is why people end up stretching. And, and again, that's all, as I kind of joke to them, it's in the interest of the colleges to have people stretch. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've joked a few times now because for my book, I think a big takeaway is that a lot of people aren't viewing college as an investment still. They're viewing it as a benefit that they're almost entitled to. And so they don't ask these questions. I think people have misinterpreted some of our advice in the book about pushing off the price question a little bit to later because we more want to see like what are you interested in yep. and broaden options and then you should bring in prices as you're actually applying we don't mean to say anchor on something uh, but I think this also gets into some of the gapping phenomenon yep. that you've started to write about and become concerned about that's not actually just uh, or at all in some cases impacting low-income students but actually middle-income students yeah I mean and so this is what happens when uh, you know the expected family contribution is X and colleges and universities package uh, have a financial aid number that's lower than that that they're providing and so students and parents have to look elsewhere for that money. And the average gap now uh, at a public university is about $12,000. At a private university, it's about $14,000. And that's gone up a lot in the last uh, 10 years. And why is that? Because college costs continue to rise. Prices 
numbers continue to rise, but yet family incomes are, are stagnating. And what ends up happening, I think, is that many students uh, stretch uh, because, again, they're making these choices kind of under the gun at the last minute uh, in uh, in the spring. And then they show up on campus and they realize they're paying all this extra money that they didn't expect to pay. Uh, and, and, you know, they're kind of annoyed by it. So student engagement by them is not very good. And those are the students, I think, for most colleges where they end up uh, dropping out uh, or transferring. So I'm curious, actually, how does this play into early admissions? Because we've, we're about a month out when this episode airs from uh, everyone getting their early admissions decisions. Some colleges filling half their class, maybe even a little bit more in some cases uh, through that pool. Uh, how does this play in with that? So I think some of it is that some of the big early decision schools that that take in so much of their class are not gapping as much because most of them will meet full need. Uh, and I think that parents and students uh, who are who are savvy enough about early decision because it's such a small number in, in the grand scheme of things, uh, I, I don't think they're as concerned uh, about that. But I, I think that we really need – I mean, the thing that uh, as we were talking with Sabrina and Nick about – uh, you know, we need to bring more transparency to pricing. Yeah. Again, that's all in the benefit of the consumer and not in the benefit of the college. And what what's happening now, I think, in higher education, given the contraction in the market, given the fear about financial sustainability, is that colleges are trying to husband as many resources as they can, and and they're trying to control the process even more so than ever before. So there's nothing in 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 their view that they want to do this, right? Because again, it's not to their uh, to their. Yeah, this advantage. is where the Paul Tuff book, I think. Uh, uh, and, and the excerpt that came out of the New York Times magazine from it uh, is sort of telling in terms of how colleges are trying to piece together their class to optimize both the right, quote unquote, mix of students, but also the right revenue mix to be able to support the program. And, and so, Michael, I was interested, since you had a, a role in this brouhaha a yeah, little bit so uh, that they talked about, um, What uh, were you surprised that there was that much pushback? Were you surprised that there was even threats of, of, of lawsuits? And do you think one day these numbers will see the light of day. Yeah, so I, when Nick texted me and told me what was going on, I was shocked, uh, to be totally honest. By the same token, there was some reason I was wary about naming names. I mean, Nick and I have co-bylined a piece together about uh, uh, using this data where we didn't name names of schools. And I think we both had a reticence of it. And when it came out, I actually immediately, you know, got in touch with some friends at the Wall Street Journal and other places and said, sort of, what's your take on this? Are we crazy? Uh, Because when you step back from it, on the one hand, you say, well, be careful, because the moment you put out financial information, it's maybe a self-fulfilling prophecy. Fewer students will go there. And does that cause a college to go into decline? Although that hasn't yet happened at Sweetbriar or, or even Hampshire, although I guess it's 18 students or something like that enrolled there at the moment, but uh, in, in its new class, I should say. But, you know, there's some fears about that. I, that I, I, I get those fears, right? And no one's trying to accelerate the closure of a college. By the same token, in any other industry, we have analysts doing all sorts of uh, analysis and reports to bring to light concerns they have about the financial viability and ongoing sustainability of an enterprise. It's very common. And for such a high commitment decision as college is for students, having some basic transparency, knowing that, yes, like the future could change, right? That college could innovate the way Southern New Hampshire did, the way Simmons College did, uh, and change things around is absolutely true. And 
it's not a bad thing to have that information out there. I think it's an academic freedom issue almost. I mean, what was your take as, you know, you used to be the editor of the Chronicle. Yeah, I mean, I was really frustrated by it. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I understand Nick and Sabrina as a startup. They didn't want to take the chance. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm hopeful that some other publication will just take this on and, and, just, and, and just do it. Because as, as we talked about in the, in the interview with them, Every piece of analysis on this da- data, as they claim, as they said, is you know public data. Uh, everyone's going to have a problem with it at some point, and so at some point you just have to put it out there and have this uh, have this discussion. And I will say the model was conservative in the sense of it was looking at uh, financial uh, inflows and outflows essentially uh, and solvency based on cash reserves. It did not factor in all the other issues that are out there in terms of demographics right. and so forth that we know is coming out. And if you were to layer on some of those models. I think it would look worse than theirs, uh, say, suggest that it is for certain colleges. So one of the things we're going to be doing this year in 2020 on uh, future years taking audience uh, questions. Uh, So bring them on, uh, send them in. Uh, You know, we're going to be asking for them on on social media. And so we have uh, we have a few uh, that we got uh, uh, for the beginning of uh, of 2020. And the first one comes from Robert Gibson. Michael, and I'm going to ask you this. uh, uh, The question is, do you attribute the spate of college closings to the disruption theory or more so to the result of changes in demographics and the looming dearth of of college age students? So I'd actually say none of the above. Uh, (laughs) I would start with the business model uh, of colleges, just the uh, inability to continue to bring in the revenue necessary to keep up with the cost increases that we've seen. And yes, uh, you know, net tuition hasn't risen as fast, but it's still rising because the college uh, cost pressures are there. Administrative overhead has gone up significantly, and it's just hard to keep it. I would say factor number two in the college closings will be demographics, though, still not disruption theory. Uh, Disruption theory might be a distant third. I, I just... I personally think disruption has hit in the master's degree programs. I don't think it's really hit the undergraduate experiences uh, yet. And so to the extent that those cash cow master's programs are holding up a college or university, sure, disruption's part of the story, but I don't think it's the main player yet. And I think part of the issue here, too, is we're not going to see this across. We tend to talk about higher education as an industry or a sector, and there's obviously different pieces of it, uh, different silos of it. So we're not going to see this among certain types of institutions uh, in certain places in in the country either. That's absolutely right. And I think, you know, where disruption theory could play a role later is in these faster, cheaper college alternatives like the Kenzie Academies uh, in the Midwest, right, that are offering a year program as opposed to, say, a two-year program or a four-year program uh, from a non-brand name school that maybe it starts to hollow out that and that, coupled with the demographic trends, I think could play a role uh, in some colleges collapsing. I just don't think it's a significant player yet. Well, it was great to have uh, Nick and Sabrina on the on the show today and to talk a, a lot about probably a, something we're going to be talking uh, frequently on Future U this year around kind of the financial sustainability of, of colleges and universities. So thanks for joining us on Future U and join us for our next episode. Hey, folks, Michael Horn here. Hope you enjoyed the latest episode of Future You. And just a reminder to please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. And if you like the podcast, rate us so that others can find us and uh, find out about the good conversations that we're having here. As always, thanks so much for listening.